Craig, would you come and share God's worth with us this morning? Alrighty, great singing, great songs, though probably not the songs that you would choose for a pep fest. They're more expressing the reality of life. And if we are, if we are willing to acknowledge the reality of all of life, which, by the way, the Bible does. The Bible, the Bible gives us songs of joy, and it gives us songs of grief. And the, the verse that we just sang, uh, sing, oh, sing, through the storms, of, of, you know, through the grief of storms. I mean, that, that's, that's really what we need to do, and that's what Psalm 88 is, I think, going to help us to be able to acknowledge. So thank you very much. <clears throat> I recently, just in fact, a couple weeks ago, uh, traveled to northern Minnesota to attend the celebration of life for my 57-year-old cousin who ended his own life because of a long, long siege of deep, dark depression. In that service, one after another stood up and talked about what a wonderful guy my cousin was. He was a writer. He was an entertainer. He was a musician. He was an advocate for senior citizens. He was a business owner. He was very much involved in his community. In fact, the funeral was held in the school gymnasium, and hundreds of people came out to, to acknowledge his passing. But all through that service, with all the testimonials about his life, the word God was never mentioned. Jesus was never named. Because my cousin had left the faith decades ago and had chosen a lifestyle that doesn't surprise me, brought on deep depression. So after all those testimonials, my uncle, his father, got up to speak the closing words. My uncle was a graduate of Northwestern Bible College back in, in a previous lifetime of mine, and also Dallas Theological Seminary. He pastored churches. He taught Greek and Hebrew in seminaries, and he, he, was a, he was a thorough biblical scholar. In fact, to this day, he has his devotions out of the Greek and Hebrew text. He's a godly man, but he's also experienced a lot of doubts over the years and, and, and really some, some depression of his own. But as he got up to speak... He told us from the get-go, he said uh, that he's often called to speak in churches on a pulpit-filled kind of a situation. He said, I got a call one Sunday morning at 7.30. A church asked if I would come and preach at 10.30 that morning. And uh, he agreed to do so. But he said, I stood there in the kitchen in my pajamas wondering, what in the world do I say to a church on a day like this when I'm feeling a bit dark myself? So he said, I went to the church, and when it was my turn, I got up to speak, and I, I said to him, today I'd like to talk to you about what's wrong with Christianity. And when he said that, my heart just sank. Because I know, I've sat for many hours with my uncle talking about his doubts and his, his concerns and his frustrations with some of the aspects of, Christ, of the Christian faith. And so he said, I want to talk to you about what's wrong with Christianity. For starters, he says, God doesn't answer our prayers. And then he said to the crowd there that day, he said, you can imagine how long and how hard and how often we prayed for our, my son. And God didn't answer our prayers. And besides that, he said, the world is filled with horror and grief and terror. And many innocent people suffer horrible sufferings 
And how can Christianity be a working faith if that's true? And by the way, if these things are concerns of yours too, why don't you just leave Christianity? By this time, I'm sweating bullets. I'm just thinking, uncle, you are, you're wrecking this thing. In fact, he said, why don't you just chuck it? That was his exact words. And then he said, well, let me tell you why I haven't forsaken my faith. Let me tell you why I haven't left Christianity. It all comes down to John 6, 68. In that chapter, many of the disciples of Jesus left him. They stopped following him. Jesus then, in verse 67, turned to his 12 and he said, Will you also go away? And Peter pipes up in verse 68 and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And my uncle proceeded to say, That is why. I haven't left Christianity. Because Jesus is Christianity. He is, and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the light of the world. I am all these things. So if Jesus, if you abandon Jesus, where do you go? And he was talking to a crowd of people, many of whom had abandoned Jesus many years before, and some of his own children as well. But really, folks, when things get dark and when it seems that heaven has become silent and that God is not talking, God is not answering, God is not hearing, when it seems that Christianity is a broken faith, my question for you is, where do you go? Where do you turn? If you leave Jesus, who's left to go to? My uncle is not the only Christian who has struggled with his or her faith over the perception that God doesn't answer our prayers. The oldest book in our Bible, Job, Job himself in chapter 30, verse 2, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. Can you imagine a more pathetic picture? This is Job, who we find, we discover in the first chapter, was a godly man. He was continually offering sacrifices for his children in case they had inadvertently denied the faith. He was a righteous man, a just man, which is why he was targeted by Satan. But here's Job coming to the place in his journey and his experience where he says, I cry to you and you don't answer me. Remember Habakkuk, the minor prophet. Chapter 1, verse 2, this is how he starts his book. He says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear me? I'm crying, I'm crying, I'm crying again, and you don't hear me. And by the way, this book ends with one of the greatest affirmations of faith in God anywhere in the scripture, if you follow through to the end of that book. Psalm 42, which was on the screen this morning and read, Uh, As our scripture reading, my tears, verse 3, have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Because he previously said in that song, you don't answer me. I call and you don't answer me. All I have is my tears and my suffering for my breakfast, lunch, and supper. I'll admit that as my uncle was beginning his homily and citing reasons why Christianity doesn't work, I was getting quite nervous, too, 
because I, I, I was starting to wonder if he had lost his own battle with depression, if he had lost his faith. But let me just ask you this. If you were to attend a ceremony like I attended that ceremony and heard my uncle say those things before he got to John 6, 68, if, if you heard a preacher that you didn't know stand up and talk in the kind of language that we find in Psalm 88, would you wonder if this person had lost his or her faith? I'd like to read Psalm 88 now, and I want you to think about that question as I read. Will you stand with me? for the reading of God's word this morning. The song is written by Haman and Ezra. We'll talk more about that later on. But he starts this way. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one let loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in regions dark and deep. You, your wrath, lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become... And the last word of this song in the Hebrew text is darkness. You can be seated. I've been working for the last few months, mentoring a young man who spent, I shouldn't say young man, he's in his 50s, but he spent 10 years in prison. And uh, he told me that during those days in prison when life was extremely dark, he discovered Psalm 88 and he read it every single day. It was his text while he was in prison. And I said, really? Psalm 88 is the darkest and most depressing piece of scripture in all the Bible. And you chose that? And he just laughed. Because, of course, he had discovered other texts since then. But I do think Psalm 88, the one we just read, is the darkest, the most depressing piece of scripture in the entire Bible. So why is it even there? And if you were to hear a person say these things, would you wonder if they were contemplating an about-face, and a departure from God. Wouldn't you think if a person felt this way and talked this way and felt as hopeless and helpless and, and abandoned as this, that he would be saying to you in the next breath, I'm done. I tried Christianity, and it didn't work. I'm done. I'm leaving. 
Of course, you'd like to say, so where are you going? Well, this man, I don't think, has left the faith. And I think it'd be a good conversation to just go through this psalm and, and just take it line by line, which we're going to kind of do this morning. But I want, I want to just ask you to think with me as we work through this psalm. Is this a song of despair truly? Or is it a song of persevering faith? I would like to propose to you that there's, a, there's, there's something about this song, there's something in this song that proves to us that this is a song, this is a man who has persevering faith. And by the way, that's a little bit of a redundancy because there is no such thing as non-persevering faith. But I, I just want to emphasize the fact that faith, if it's genuine, when it gets under the, under the trials and testings of life and when, when life hurts, and when life seems to be unraveling, falling apart at the seams, then faith keeps on going. Faith doesn't give up. Faith doesn't cash it in. Faith doesn't jettison Christianity and walk away. It doesn't give up on God. True faith perseveres through the storm. It's not only a song of persevering faith, but in fact, let me just, let me give you three reasons why I think this is a song of persevering faith. Verse one, or verse, um, I'm sorry, verse, yeah, verse one, verse nine, and verse 13. Verse one, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Verse nine, every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread my hands out to you. Verse 13, O Lord, I cry out to you in the morning, my prayer comes to you. All right, so here is a man who, though life has gotten as dark as it could possibly get, and I don't know that there's anybody in this room who's experienced the kind of darkness and the length of darkness that Heman the Ezraite has experienced. I know I haven't. We've gone through dark times. We've had discouraging moments in our life. We've had hard things that have happened to us. All of us have. We could spend the rest of the day just sharing our experiences, and that would be depressing probably. But if, 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 if all of us have experienced those things, maybe none of us have experienced it to the extent that Heman has experienced it. But he didn't give up on his faith. So let's try to follow the progression of thought in this text and see if our faith is made of the same stuff as Heman the Ezraite's faith. And by the way, let's again, let's, let's not talk about persevering faith. Let's talk about genuine faith, the kind of faith that really is the gift of God, which is, is, is a robust faith. It's a faith that can handle the adversities of life. I want to cite four qualities of genuine faith from the life of Heman and from his hymn that I just read to you. One, faith rests on a bedrock of truth. Okay, Faith is not a floaty thing that's just out there. You know, when, when, you, when you listen to the news and you, you hear some uh, reporter uh, interview somebody who's just gone through a tornado or had their house blow away or, or the house burned down or something, and they'll say, you know, my faith, my faith is going to get me through. Well, faith isn't just... A, a, a thing. It's not just a stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a dependence upon a source. It, it, it relates to someone or something. If you sit on a chair, you have faith in the chair. If you follow God through the storm, you have faith in God. Okay, so faith has to have an object, and it's only as good as its object. And this man has a faith that is persevering because of faith in God. But how do we examine our faith in times of deep distress when God seems to be distant? Key word, operative term, seems. Okay, I'm not saying God is distant because God says he's close. 
So if God declares himself to be close, if God says, I will never leave you, if God says, I will be with you through the, through the valley or through the flood, then you know what? God is there. He may be invisible. He may be silent. He may not be acting in ways that you can discern and understand, but he is there. So faith, true, genuine, persevering faith, genuine faith, living faith is a faith that's built on a bedrock of truth. I find that in verses 1 and 2. Because the psalmist says, O Lord God of my salvation, you are the God who is the one who has delivered me. Now, I don't know that Heman is talking about salvation in the sense of John 3.16, where we confess our sins and he saves us from all of our sins. I don't know that he's talking about soul salvation in that sense of the term. Often in the Old Testament, the word salvation is, is synonymous with deliverance. You have saved me. You have delivered me. You have made a way out of my my exigencies, my, my negative experiences, you, my, my disasters, you, you've brought me through. Oh, Lord, God of my salvation. But the key word there, the word that I love in that phrase is the word my. You are the God of my salvation. You have, you have claimed me. You have interposed for me. You have come to my defense. You have, you have owned me is, is really the essence. When our faith is tested... We need to stand on our certainties. We need to stand on those things that we know to be true, that God is, that God is good, God is just, God is faithful, God is sovereign, God is Savior. So Heman is doing that very same thing. He's, he's resting on a relational truth. For all of his darkness, he knows that he has a claim to intimacy with God, and he appeals to no one other than God. He's not reaching out to a government agency. He's not reaching out to the king. He's reaching out to the God who's the only one with whom he has this intimate, personal, long-standing relationship, and he's experienced deliverance from him in the past. He cries, but the heavens are mute. He waits, but God does not answer. But he clings to these two unshakable truths. One, that God is his saving God, the Lord, Yahweh, the one who is, the I am the self-existent one, the God of Israel, the God who is, who is the covenant God of Israel, the one who entered into relationship with that nation at Sinai and became their personal God. He's also Elohim, the ruling God of majestic power. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created. He spoke all the worlds and everything into existence. But Haman is not content to know that God is or that he rules or that he's self-existent, but that the one who is and the one who rules is his personal deliverer. The one who makes a way for him, the one who leads him out of trouble. And true faith never stops saying, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. We're going to talk about that psalm later on today, if you stick around for the second, second hour. Uh, but that's, that's where he rests. He rests on this personal relationship that he has with God. There's an intimate connection between him and God. He's not feeling it right now, but he's knowing it right now. And those are two different things. Often we are so driven by feelings, and if we don't have the right feelings, we feel that, that things aren't the way they're supposed to be or things that aren't true anymore. But we don't go to our feelings. We go to the facts. We go to what is what is true. And what is true is... If God declares himself with us, there is nothing that we can experience that will disprove the reality that God is with us. Two, he says, I have a standing with you. 
He says in, in that phrase, he says, I cry out to you day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Those are two different words, before you. One has the idea of in your presence. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in your presence, and the other is before your face. Okay, Those are two words that come frequently throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Speaking of the fact that we have a stand. Now, now a, or Heman didn't have this same sense of standing or positional sanctification that we, we understand from the New Testament. But the reality of it was that he did understand in some sense of the term that he had a standing with God, that he was, he was in his presence. He was, he was there and as he spoke, as he cried, as he, as he talked to God, that God was somehow there and that he was in his presence, that he had a right to be there. There's hope in that. There's hope in, in the knowledge that we have a standing, we have inherited a relationship with God. God has gifted us a position of children, of sons as servants so that we have the ability to go to him in prayer and cast our burdens before him. This fact may be the only positive in the entire psalm. Now, there's not a lot of positivity in this psalm. But if, you, if, you, if you're looking for something positive, you've got to grab onto these ideas. In every age, God's people have equated salvation, Christianity, a relationship with God, with trouble-free living. I mean, look at Asaph in Psalm 40 or 73. You know, he, he was about ready to cash in his faith because he looked around him and he saw the wicked were prospering in significant ways, in stellar ways, and in outstanding ways, and he was suffering. He says, how is this right? He says, I was, I was, I was, on, I was on treacherous ground at that point. I was ready to cash it in until I went to the sanctuary and then I understood their end. So there was a truth factor that that sustained him. But we, we have this tendency to think of Christianity as it's all supposed to work. It's all supposed to be good because Jesus is with me and Jesus is my, my Savior. So, you know, life has changed and it's all on an upward trajectory. We're all, everything's going northeast. Everything used to be going southwest, but now it's all going northeast. northeast. And that, that's just not true because God in his sovereignty allows us to experience a range of experiences and all for our good. You look at Ace of Psalm 73, and he says, and he, he, he grabs onto this truth at the end of that psalm, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You receive me to glory. And that is where in every age, people have had to, had to grab a hold of this reality, the witness of God, that God is always close, that God is never distant, that God is always with us. David in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because you are with me. Isaiah and Israel heard the same promise in Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, it shall not, you shall not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. Why? Because I am with you. That witness is the thing that we cling to in these moments. Matthew 28, 18 says, All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Jesus said this. I have authority over everything, every circumstance, every train that rolls by, every car that approaches me on the highway, every, every landmine in, in, a, in, a, in a war zone. God has, Jesus has authority over all those circumstances that we confront. 
And he says in verse 20, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is all human head. And it was enough to hold him until God finally made his purposes clear. It was the rock he stood on. It was the bedrock. It wasn't a mountaintop. It wasn't a rocky, rocky mountain top, but it was a foothold that kept him from sinking any deeper than he already was. Well, you say, that's precious little consolation. I think I'm not going to just grab that and run out the door waving white hankies and shouting and dancing. I, th- I think I need more. We'll keep reading. In fact, let me refer you back to Job, who we've mentioned. How, how far in the narrative did you have to read in the book of Job before hope became the picture, before things resolved themselves in, in his experience? Would you say like the last chapter? Yes. Faith rests on a bedroom bedrock of truth. But two, faith embraces a troubling sovereignty. We sometimes talk about the sweet sovereignty of God and the hard sovereignty of God. Or sometimes we use the word providence in which God is, God is actively working on our behalf. And we talk about the hard providence or the sweet providence. Because both of them are true. Life is made up of a combination, a series of of hard providences and sweet providences, hard sovereignty of God. God is the the ruling authority. I know that you can do all things, Job said, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The psalmist, David, 115, I think it is, verse 3, he says, O Lord, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. There is no purpose of God that can be somehow thwarted by human effort or even the rules of na- laws of nature. There is nothing that God wills to happen that can, that, that can somehow be interrupted and, and, and prevented from happening. God does whatever he pleases. And sometimes we have to embrace that reality when we're going through the valley of the shadow of death, when we're experiencing the hard providences of God. That God has a purpose, that God is doing something, and he's doing something good because God is good. The psalmist basically saying here, I'm sinking into the grave. We have to understand the the uniqueness of this particular lament because all the other lament songs, and I think I mentioned last time I was here, I think we talked about psalms and songs of lament, if, if I'm not mistaken, and there are like 62 songs in the 150-song collection that have either elements of lament or are they full-blown lament psalms. And in all of those except this one, there is this positive resolution at the end. God does intervene. God does come to, to deliver the psalmist. And he, he praises and he sings songs to God in the, in the event of that deliverance. Or the psalmist is so sure that God is going to that he offers praise anywhere or projects that praise ahead of time. This psalm is unique. It ends, as I mentioned, the last word in the psalm is darkness. My friends have all left me. You've left me, it seems. And it's just dark. I'm sinking into the grave. Heman's darkness is radical. It's an inner darkness, and it's an outer darkness. He looks outside at his friends. They've abandoned him. He looks outside at his circumstances, and it's, it's devastating. He looks at his body, and it's sick. It's on to, on, nigh unto the grave, and it's been that way for a long, long time. But then he looks within, and he finds no, no comfort, no consolation, no word from God in his soul that's, that's comforting him. 
It's a radical darkness. Many are able to handle the external darkness when the light comes on on the inside. Paul, in fact, in, in, it said on multiple occasions to God, I'm hurting. Please remove this affliction. And the answer that came to him in that moment of desperation was, my grace is all you need. My grace is sufficient for you. Okay, the light comes on in his soul because God is responding to him. God is telling him something positive. The suffering saints in Asia Minor in 1 Peter had an internal hope that affliction could not extinguish so that they, though they were suffering, they were able to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. They were being, their lives were being threatened. Their possessions were being threatened. They were under, they were under attack in the secular world. But they could sing. They could express joy that was unspeakable. Heman was more like Job, though, pleading for an answer and hearing nothing for a long, long time. Consider how dark life is when circumstances are both hopeless and heaven is silent. We simply don't sing this kind of song very much anymore. I really appreciate the songs you sang this morning. They're kind of rare in a world that loves to sing happy songs. Songs that express more of the jubilant aspects of the Christian journey. And we like to sing Heavenly Sunshine. I mean, it's just, come on, let's, let's, let's delight in, in, in all the good and happy things. But the Hebrew hymn book is full of lament and sadness because that's part of the real world that we live in. Heman's strong cries are evidence of a stubborn hope in a God who is real who is sovereign, who is reliable. And the more severe his suffering, it seems, the more affected he was Godward. The more inclined he was. He just, he he cries out to God in verse 1. He sees no hope. He sees the desperateness of his condition. And he draws him back to God in verse 9. He continues to to dwell on the hopelessness of his circumstances and the fact that God is the one that's doing it to him and it draws him to God again, verse 13. He just can't give up on God. An atheist can only be apathetic because his circumstances, according to his belief system, are the the meaningless effects of happenstance. They are just the results of a natural world working against me. So who do you appeal to? Who, how, what, what, what arouses your, your emotions? How do you emote toward nature? How do you emote toward the laws of a broken world when there's no person, nothing but fate? But this was not Haman's case. His pain is real. His emotions are raw. God is silent, but his faith is robust. He spares no words to describe his suffering. Look at verse 3. He says, My soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. That's the grave. I'm cut as one who goes down to the pit. I have no strength. I'm among the dead. Like a slain one lying in a grave. Like a, like a, like a, like a, a soldier who dies in battle and is cast into a mass grave. That's, that's me. I feel that, I feel that way. Trouble. Affliction. Sheol. Pit set loose among the dead, like the slain lying in a grave. You remember me no more. The dead are gone without a passing thought, cut off from your hand, beyond the reach of your help. But he knows that 
God is the cause. And that's where there's this transition in verse 6. You notice in, in the first five verses, it's I, 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 I. Not in a boastful way, but just, just an indicative way. He says, this is what is happening. This is my experience. But then he shifts it in verse 6, and he starts saying, it is you. It's not just circumstances that are, but it is you who have caused them. You put me in the depths of the pit. You put me in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy. You overwhelm me. You cause my companions to shun me. You make me a horror to them. I am shut in by you. Okay, so he's saying all these things about the same God who he professed in verse 1 was his salvation and whom, before whom he had standing. Does that even make sense to you? You are my God. You are the God of my salvation. You are my deliverer, God. I trust in you. I have standing with you. I, I stand before you and I, and I offer you my petitions. And I, am, I have a right to be there because you've granted it to me. And what do you do with it? You put me in a pit. You put me in regions dark and deep. What would you do if those things are all true? I mean, if you're thinking the way Heman is thinking, what's your next step? There's got to be someplace else to go. I need a counselor. I need drugs. I need something. But, but God's not working for me. Christianity is not working. But that's not what he does. As soon as he finishes saying those things, he says, every day I call upon you. Oh, Lord, I spread out my hands to you. If you pick it up in verse 14, he continues this saga. Lord, you, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? I'm afflicted and close to death from my youth up. Why? Because of you, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a... I mean, he can't, he can't spend enough rhetoric to try to establish the fact that, God, you are the one who's doing it. Yes, God is a sovereign God. God does do whatever he chooses to do. And sometimes it hurts. Sometimes God wills for the lights to go out. Sometimes God wills us to live in cloudy, dreary days for weeks on end in our souls. Sometimes he gives us what seems to be barrenness in our souls. Why? I'm not going to presume to reveal to you the mind of the Almighty in your particular circumstance, or even mine. All we can do in those times is trust the God who we know to be true. We read the Bibles, and I'll tell you, we need to be reading our Bibles with a view to discovering who God is. Who God is for us in Jesus Christ. And as we discover who God is, that's the most important thing we can take away from the Scriptures because that's what we hang on to. It's those rock-solid truths about God's self-disclosure. God is revealed God reveals himself. He is a self-disclosing God. He reveals himself in his word. He reveals himself in nature. He does not reveal himself. He does not define himself in our experiences. My experiences are not all that's necessary to write a theology about God. If I write a theology based on my experiences, I'm going to get it all wrong. But if I write a theology based on what God has said in his word, I'm going to get it all right. And it's when things are going all wrong for me that I need to look at what is true and what is absolutely undeniable. A high view of God acknowledges his sovereignty in all things. And that's what Heman is doing here. You know, this is not a faith denial. This is, this is a theology lesson. 
He is saying, you're doing this. And he's not cursing God. Like Job's wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job says, no, 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 no. You speak like one of the foolish women. God has given, God's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know that Haman is going that far. But he's not turning on God. He's resting in all that God is for him. My distress is great, he's saying. It's your doing, but I trust you. Is that the way your faith works when the lights go out? So faith rests on a bedrock of truth. We've got to go to what's real, what's true. And then faith embraces, it accepts as the reality of life, both the sweet providences of God and the hard providences of God. Both God as he sovereignly rules in life in a sweet way and in a hard way. But then thirdly, faith. Faith, and this is one of the things, one of the big takeaways of this psalm, I think, is that faith speaks candidly. That is, honestly and frankly with God. Verses 9 through 13. He says, My eye grows dim through my sorrow. Every day I call upon you, Lord. I spread my hands before you. Do you work? I'm sorry. Uh, He speaks candidly with God, and I think there's, there's, there's multiple dispositions or rhetoric that comes through. Maybe we could say different tones uh, in, his, in his speech. There's desperation, verses 1 through 5. We've already looked at those verses. It's, you, could be, you could describe his, his desperation here as being an expression of protracted wailing, just crying out. And then there's the accusatory, which we haven't really looked at yet. Yes, we have, in verses 6 through 8. Uh, where he says, you did it, you're doing it, it's, it's, it's your thing. And then he becomes argumentative with him. He's trying, to, he's trying to cajole God or confront God or persuade God by use of, of uh, rhetoric. Uh, when he, he asks this series of questions, do you work wonders for the dead? If you put me in the grave, okay, you've got me on the edge of the grave, you've got me in the pit, the dark, deep pit. If you, if you just fling me down into the grave and I actually die, are there any praise and worship services in the grave? Come on, am I going to be able to stand there and give testimony? Am I going to be able to exalt your name in the congregation if I'm dead? Preserve me so that I can serve you, he's saying in essence. Do the departed rise up to praise you? No. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? There are six questions here, by which rhetorical questions, by which he's asking God answer, questions that have a negative answer. Okay? There is no, there is no praise and worship services in, in the grave. No testimonials from the grave. Most of us are scandalized by this kind of talk. I mean, who has the right to talk to God this way? Who has the the right to accuse God? Who has the right to bargain with God? I mean, has he he lost his faith? Is it okay to tell God what we're thinking? Well, why wouldn't it be, since he already knows anyway? Is there anything we can shock God with? Are we going to shock God with the realities of our our, our terrors, our fears, our our concerns, our, our, our our faith seems to be undermined and we're, we're, we're sinking. Is it okay to tell God exactly what we're thinking, what we're going through? He desires honesty. 
And he can't be shocked. He already knows. But I would only caution that our complaints can justly be delivered, and they can be delivered candidly, but they must be delivered on a, on a platter of faith. We have to keep on trusting. It's when we deny, it's when we lose our faith and start talking this way that we, that we become guilty of blasphemy. But this is not blasphemy. And this is really the, the, you know, the reason we don't like Psalm 88 is because it doesn't seem to have a happy ending. But let me go to this, this last point here and then we'll be done. Faith is improved by suffering. And you say, well, where in the world do you see that in Psalm 88? Faith is improved by suffering. You must be taking that from some kind of a counseling manual because I don't see that in Psalm 88. But if you go back to verse 0, uh, the, first, the first verse, which is not a numbered verse in our Bibles, but it is part of the original text. A song. This is the heading. A song. A psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath, Leonoth, a maskil of Heman, the Ezraite. There are at least two remarkable observations to take away from that heading. One is that he calls it a song of the sons of Korah. Is it not a rich irony that 12 of the songs in this collection were written by the sons of a man who was judged by God for his rebellion, direct rebellion against God, and the earth opened up and swallowed him, destroyed him, God summarily dispatched him, and yet his sons, by the grace of God, go on to become some of the contributors to Israel's hymnody and even leaders of the worship uh, of worship in, in Israel, a song of the sons of Korah. And two, Heman, the Ezraite. Ezraite. And if you look at, if you, if you would do a, a concordance uh, search on Heman, you'll find in First uh, Chronicles 6 and several other places in, in, in Chronicles that he very likely is the same Heman who was described in chapter 6, verse 33 of First Chronicles as one of, the one, one of the individuals that David appointed as the worship leader of the nation of Israel. He contributed this song and probably others to the hymnody of Israel. He stood before the congregation and led them in praise and worship like this group did up here this morning which to me is an indication that there must have been, though it's not mentioned in the, in the narrative of the text, there has to have been a change of circumstances. Now, it's possible to sing songs of praise through gritted teeth, through tears, tears flowing down our face, through the dip, depth of our agonies and our sorrows. We sometimes sing, don't we? Don't we sometimes come to these moments of worship as we sing together and some have smiles on their face and some have the look of agony? This is one of the benefits of standing in this position and looking out as, as the church worships. It's true just about every Sunday that there's both countenances out there and they're both appropriate. It's right for us to sing with joy in our souls because all these things we're saying about Jesus and about God are so abundantly clear and true in our experience. And there's some that are sitting there through agony, through clenched teeth and, and with tears running down their faces and, and heartbreak in their souls are singing these same songs because they know it's true that he is real 
but they're not tasting it right now. Haman the Ezraite, probably a worship leader in the nation of Israel. What all this means is that Haman not only survived his ordeal, but he was so stretched and improved by it that he was able to contribute this great hymn and probably others as he led Israel in worship. This man who felt utterly abandoned by God was actually being prepared for a life of service that no seminary could have been prepared him for. There are certain things that seminaries just can't contribute to the life of a pastor preacher or that, that, that life, can, can, life in general can prepare uh, us for or our educational experiences can prepare us for in terms of Christianity. Sometimes we just have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes we just have to experience a very poignant moment in our, in our journey in order to be stretched and changed and prepared for the life that God has for us. Christians who feel abandoned by God in times of deep distress are drawn to the cross and to the dark reality of the Good Friday crucifixion. The song ends, You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. Darkness has become my only companion. Does that sound familiar? Do you know anybody else in biblical history who would be able to say that, who could identify with those sentiments? How about Jesus on that Good Friday crucifixion? As he prepared himself to go to the cross, as he was on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I can't get my mind around the unity of the Trinity when it's in the experience of one part of the Trinity talking to another part of the Trinity, and yet there's only one God. I I don't understand that, but I do understand this. Jesus was in anguish of his soul, in his soul, as as he faced the reality of bearing the load of your sin and mine. He was crushed, and it, Psalm, Isaiah 56, 3, or 6, 53.6, 53.6, the psalmist says, it, was the, it pleased the Lord to crush him. He was abandoned by God, Psalm 22. He was, he, was, he was saying out of that particular psalm text, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was an aloneness and there was darkness that descended on the entire earth from noon until the third hour. Why? As a recognition of the pathos of his own soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus absorbed a worse darkness than Heman or you will ever face. He was truly abandoned by the Father more than you or I can ever know. And why? Because he was entering into a darkness that was complete the complete abandonment of his father in order to make a way for us to be eternally reconciled to that very same God, the one that we think has sometimes cut us off. But as Paul said, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also by him truly give us all things? And that may be the one we have to cling to as we're going through the hard seasons of life. And as he tells us through the writer of Hebrews, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. No matter how dark your life, no matter how silent the heavens, no matter how tortured your circumstances, the nearness of Christ 
is one of the certainties in that bedrock of faith that you have to stand on. So no matter how dark your life becomes, no matter how silent heaven seems to be, cling to what you know to be true. Grab a hold of those verities, those truths that you read in the scriptures. Cling to those and keep on praying. I think that's the answer that Psalm 88 gives us to the question, what do we do when the heavens go silent? Cling to what's true about God and cling to what the Bible has revealed about you as having standing with God and being owned by God and then keep on praying. Don't lose faith in God. Don't walk away from Jesus because, as Peter asked, oh Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. God bless you in your journey. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Heman. Lord, we can be thankful that we're not experiencing right now what he experienced, but we may someday. And in, that, in those times of, of darkness, maybe this is a psalm that we will go to. Just to borrow its rhetoric, to express the deepness of our grief and our sorrows to you. But may we also do what he did in clinging to those, those truths about you and persisting in praying every single day, morning, noon, and night, crying out to God, being frank, being candid in our, in our, in our rhetoric, but yet but believing and trusting because you are the changeless God who has promised you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us, and you'll be with us through every circumstance of life, good, bad, or indifferent, it seems to us. But for you, they are all good because you orchestrate only that which is good because you are good. So we thank you for that truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Craig. A wonderful message, wonderful text. That kind of answers a question. I don't know if you remember this. If you 